Good morning, I'm Susan Blair, and I'll be reading our scripture passage today from the book of Habakkuk. You can find Habakkuk on page 785 in your pew Bibles. And we'll read the first and the last sections of the three-chapter book of Habakkuk, starting on page 785. Habakkuk 1, verse 1. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you, violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed, and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Now flip ahead one page to chapter 3, and we'll start reading in verse 16. The beginning and end of chapter 3 tells us that this is written to be a corporate song with instructions to the choir master. This is for you, Rob starting in chapter 3, verse 16. I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, The produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. Hey, I wish I could have told you we planned Habakkuk on the day the choir would sing, but I don't think you'd believe me if I tried to get by with that. Hey, but it was beautiful for me this week to think about the role of singing with others, especially in a season like this. So, um... I promise we have fun as a community and we laugh and have a lot of joy, but there's a lot of sadness around the world in our lives that we try to be honest about as well. And I don't think we have to choose between honesty and hopefulness. In fact, I think the more honest we are, the more hopeful we can be. And so there are times in our lives we're just stopping and saying, man, this is dark, this is hard, I don't know where God fits into this. It's actually really important for our souls, not just to be honest, but so that you bring that honesty to God and have him speak to that. And there are times when that is overwhelming individually. Maybe it's been an extended season. Maybe you're not quite sure who got the words of faith from one another. To let a choir sing over you things you may not even believe. Or maybe you believe them, but you, you could barely get the words out. To have somebody say or sing words over you is a beautiful beautiful reality. I'll kind of sing with you and over you is a beautiful thing. And so in light of that, I just want to say thanks, choir, for 
helping us, for ministering to us, to preaching the gospel to us, to giving us language and words to um, say to God what's in our hearts. These Christmas hymns, I don't know what you think about them, but they're, they're beautiful and they're rich and they're deep. I mean, the songs we sing at Christmas are, are something that uh, feed your soul the rest of the year. And not, not like Santa Baby, not those songs, but the songs that we, that we encounter in the hymnal. So in those spaces, I just want to say thanks and um, I want to ask the God who is uh, the focal point of these songs would actually minister to us now in this space. So let me just pray for us and then we'll jump into the book of Habakkuk. Father, we ask for your help and mercy, even as we just say out loud that we need each other. Um, I just want to pause and thank you for your um, design, your plan, your will, your desire for the church. Even saying that is sometimes even a statement of faith. A lot of us have been hurt by the church. We're confused by the church. We have questions about how the church should be or what it was supposed to be or what it's been in the past or what its future will be. And yet we get to gather together not on our own, to borrow words and faith from one another in ways that help. There's no, there's no surrogate salvation faith. We can't save one another, but we can sing of the salvation. We can speak of the salvation. So I just ask now, in light of that, you would fill the room with a corporate joy and longing that has an ache to it, an honesty to it, and, and a hopefulness. Uh, would you let the words that we've sung so far and the prayers we've prayed now kind of move our hearts to ask you to speak to us. Jesus, you are strong. You are powerful. This passage is about you. So would you help us see that? Help us receive it, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, hey, if you're new with us, we're in a series on the Minor Prophets. It's the last 12 books of the Old Testament, and we kind of keep saying they're not minor because of their significance, just because of their size. And they have these themes throughout them that match really well with Advent. If Advent is a hopeful longing, if it's an explanation or a, um, an exhortation or a desire or a pledge or you crying out, God, I, I don't know how you fit into my world. I don't see how you kind of make sense of this. I need you to do more. If that's what Advent is about, then the prophets overlay on that beautifully. They find themselves for a several hundred years as these are written in different spaces and seasons, speaking to really particular situations, but there are some common themes. So there's a cry out for justice. There, there's a, a, an explanation or an exposure of social injustice. There, there's an awareness of sin. There, there's a cry out to kind of return to God to, to escape his coming judgment. So it resizes us in so many ways. It reminds us of who God is. It says truthfully about who we are and what we need God to do. And throughout the Minor Prophets and at the Old Testament, there is this whisper and this echo and this pointing to one who would come to make all things new. And that's Jesus, the one we celebrate his birth in this season. And Advent is the declaration that the darkness won't win. When we gather together in this space and we sing these songs, it's to say, though it is dark, that is not the last word. Advent's honest about the darkness, but moves towards the hope and the light that Christ came to bring into the world and that we're longing for him to finally make full and complete and new when he comes again. So, so Advent just declares the truth that the darkness will not win. And that's what Habakkuk talks about. 
Actually, all these guys have talked about that in different ways, from different voices and different perspectives. I was joking with somebody this week. It's like we've been having dinner with kind of 12 somewhat awkward friends as they're kind of telling stories. But it's one meal. It's one message about the need we have for God. And yet they're saying these things from different perspectives. So Hosea talks about our unfaithfulness. Obadiah talks about uh, pride. There's spaces where we have this longing, where, where other nations are exposed, where our own hearts are exposed, where, where there's a cry out to God. There's all these different themes, and yet they have this common thread of this honest and hopeful longing. And Habakkuk is, is just like that. He, I think he has some of the most vivid questions that we read at the beginning, and some of the most vivid like resolve to keep following God, even in the midst of the darkness. So, so I'm eager to offer his words to you this morning because I think they will be a guide for you, not just in Advent, but for the rest of your life. Habakkuk gives us a framework of how do you live honestly and hopefully. A little background might be helpful. So we're not exactly sure the exact date that he writes, but, but it's somewhere in the, the sixth century probably. He references the Babylonian invasion that would happen around 586 BC. And so in that space, we think he's writing before that. And he's writing in a time of like unrest, uncertainty, politically, religiously, socially, morally, individually. It matches a lot of our own heartache in those spaces. And what he does is he actually has a private conversation with God. Some of the prophets say, thus saith the Lord to the people. They speak to the people on behalf of the Lord. Habakkuk speaks to the Lord on behalf of the people. And just ask, God, where are you in the middle of this? So it has this very personal feel to it. Maybe like Jonah does, or even maybe the way Hosea does. They're living out this prophecy. They're living out the words of the book. Habakkuk feels kind of like this is his journal entry, if you will, to God saying, God, where are you in the midst of the pain? And what I want to do essentially is answer the question, how does Habakkuk go from chapter 1 where he just says like, I don't see you. This doesn't make any sense. There's violence everywhere. He borderlines on accusation. He says, God, where are you? Why haven't you done something about this? And then at the end of chapter 3, he has this deep resolve to trust God. And you maybe felt some dissonance as Susan read. Like, how does he go from chapter 1 to chapter 3 is essentially what I want to walk through as we engage with this book. It won't be like tips and tricks, like here's five easy steps. If you follow these, you can journey with Habakkuk from sadness to joy, but it will be a framework for you. It will encourage you to honesty. It will encourage you to hope. There are no tips and tricks in the Bible, by the way. It's a very grisly, gritty, visceral book that's honest about our brokenness, and yet what you see is sometimes templates or patterns or examples of faith of How do you talk to God? So maybe I just want to invite you in this space as we introduce Habakkuk. This might be an excruciating season for you. We've talked about the idea that Christmas is this magnifying glass. If it's going great, it feels better. If it's going bad, it feels worse. This might be an excruciating season. Would you listen to the word of the Lord to you about how to engage in something like brokenness and hopelessness, despair and doubt, to have you endure in those spaces with hope. And maybe it's not an excruciating season. Would you just take note of this? Would you let it feed your soul, give you kind of spiritual calories for the journey ahead of you? Because there will be times when what Habakkuk says is your journal entry. It is how you wake up in the morning. It is the way you cry yourself to sleep at night. That, that will 
happen. It is the human experience. So if it's particular this morning, would you hear that God sees you? And would you let Advent be this journey for you? And if, and if it feels far away, would you just kind of log it, let, digest it, let these words actually give you some sense of, of hope? Because essentially what Habakkuk is doing is saying, I know God is good on the one hand. I know he's holy. I know he's righteous. And yet, on the other hand, I don't see evidence of that. So he's living in the tension of the already, not yet, of the promise and the need for more fulfillment. He's living in what Advent is about. God, I know that you're good. I know that you're holy. You've made so many promises. I've even seen you work in the past. I've heard stories of your faithfulness on the one hand. And I walk down the street, and I sit in my house, and I listen to my neighbors, and I watch what's going on around me, and I don't know how this fits. I don't know how what I experience fits with what I know to be true about you. So Habakkuk speaks into that gap. I want to give us five R's just to organize our thoughts as we kind of walk through. How do you move from this heart-wrenching doubt to this kind of faithful, rested space of hope? And let me give them to you real quick. First, he reaches out with questions. He reaches out with questions. Then he responds to the answer that God gives him. And then he receives what God says. Then he rehearses who God is. And then he resolves to trust even if he can't quite see it. Let me come to you real quick. He reaches out. He responds. He receives. He rehearses. And then he resolves. Look with me in chapter 1 of Habakkuk. It says it's an oracle from him. Verse 2. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry out to you violence and you will not save. Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed. It's a word for like numbness. Like, like your hand is numb. You can't grab anything. There's no power. And justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. Okay, what happens in Habakkuk is a simple structure. There's two sets of questions and then answers. Twice he will say to God, where are you? And God will answer him. And then as he hears that answer, he's like, whoa, that's even worse. God, why is that the case? And then God answers him, and then there's a resolution in chapter 3. So we see in this space the first movement of going from doubt and despair and this brokenness to a space of hopeful honesty is first to actually reach out to God with questions. It's not all that you ever need to do, but the Bible gives us permission to be honest because God cares and he can handle your questions. Habakkuk gives us a pattern of how to say to God, I don't get it. I know you're good and holy. I've read all the stories. I sing the songs. I've prayed the prayers. This does not feel like that because your option is just to take that internal, not bring that to God, and actually let that metastasize in the shadows of your soul. Instead, what Habakkuk does is he aims directly to God. He reaches out to God in the midst of his despair. There's a kind of confidence or a kind of hopefulness or a kind of belief that God actually is good and that he cares. Sometimes we don't reach out because we either think God doesn't care, like we're too small, or maybe he's like too aloof, he's distracted, he's got too much on his plate, so I don't want to bother him with my stuff. Or maybe we think that our stuff is just too little. God doesn't really care about it. It's not big enough. 
in that space, that's one idea. The other one would be that we don't need his help. There's a shame, I'm not good enough, he doesn't really care anyway. And then a prideful, I can do this on my own. I can fix this on my own. I don't know what motivates you when you think about not reaching out to God, why you're hesitant to be quiet. I wonder if it's because you think God doesn't actually care, he's not actually good. Or, or you think that actually you can do this on your own. What Habakkuk does in this journey from like complaint and question to faith and hopefulness is he just starts by reaching out directly to God. Just saying, hey, this is super dark. And God answers him and it gets even darker. So he basically says, why are you letting my own neighbors, my people engage in wickedness? Which is fascinating. Basically what he's saying is, God, why haven't you brought judgment yet on your own people? We normally ask, God, why are you allowing this? And what we mean is like, God, why are you letting me succumb to temptation? Why aren't you removing the desire for pornography? Why aren't you taking away the addiction? Why aren't you just fixing this? Why aren't you supernaturally breaking in and fixing me? Why don't you take away this temptation? What, what Habakkuk is actually saying is, why don't you come and bring justice to all of this brokenness? It's a fascinating way. He's actually saying, God, why haven't you just smited the whole thing already? I don't know if you ever think about that. What we actually deserve in our brokenness, what we actually um, should receive from God in our brokenness. And what God says is in chapter 1, verse 5, oh, I will actually do justice. What he says in verse 5 is that I'm going to come through the Chaldeans, through the Babylonians, and I'm going to actually bring about judgment. I'm going to actually do all the smiting that I promised. I'm actually going to come and bring about destruction, and it is going to be severe and fierce. Look in verse 8 of chapter 1. Speaking of the Babylonians, this army that's going to come through says, Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly in like eagles, swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, and they pile up earth, and they take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on, guilty men whose own might is their God. Okay, the question is, God, why are you not doing something about the suffering? God's answer is, oh, dude, it's going to get a whole lot worse. Talk about like salt in the emotional wound, right? You're going, God, I'm asking for your justice. And what he says is, oh, I will bring justice. We have to understand that when God brings justice, he is holy and will judge completely. The small micro places where we ask for his help and justice and relief fit into a larger macro context of the brokenness of the world this side of Eden. And so he reaches out to God and God responds to him and basically just says, hey man, it's going to get a whole lot worse. Okay, so first reaches out. Then secondly, Habakkuk responds to that because it's not a God who would like just slap him on the hand and tell him stop asking questions. Check this, God is actually interacting with Habakkuk's questions. So there's a dignity here, there's a, an intimacy here. It's deep questions and God answers with a kind of depth. Wait a second, aren't you from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? Aren't you the one who's like, is eternal, aren't you holy? O Lord, have you ordained them as judgment and you, O rock of of God, have you established them for our reproof? Like they're, they're worse than we are. You who are of purer eyes than can see evil, you cannot look on any wrong. 
Then why do you idly look at these traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the men more righteous than he? He says, God, the problem I have with your answer is you're using worse people to come and actually deal with us. You're doing something that's going to feel even harsher. I thought I would ask for judgment. You would come and like speak a word, bring some sort of revival. What you're going to actually do is going to make it even more difficult. And what he says in verses 14 and 15 is the problem with this kind of pathway God's choosing is that people who are the remnant and are righteous are going to get swallowed up like fish in a big net. Rather than precision judgment on just those who really deserve it, he says it's going to be like this big net gets cast, pulling up all of the fish, which means innocent people will get harmed. The faithful remnant who are crying out to you, they're also going to go into exile. God, the collateral damage of this way is going to be intense, is what he says. And what I want you to see here is he keeps bringing that to God. He doesn't just hear the answer and walk away. He actually stays in the ring with God. Part of his journey from the opening of chapter 1 to his faith in chapter 3 is to stay honest and hopeful and faithful and keep bringing these questions to God. They're not quite accusations. Remember what he's saying is, hey, I know your character. You're from everlasting. You're holy. This doesn't fit. It's, it's a question, not an accusation. He's not saying you're unholy. He's not saying you're not from everlasting. He says, I know that's who you are. He starts with the nature and character of God and then stays in the ring to keep asking questions. Okay, so he questions again, which I just want to give you permission and encourage you towards stamina there. Larry Crabb says, never ignore your struggle with how God does things. Ask every question that raises in your heart as you live in this world, but prepare yourself to struggle even more with God's responses. You must stumble in confusion before you dance with joy. God's desire is that you would stay connected to him even with your doubts, with your questions, with your longings to bring them to God. It's like uh, Lencioni's book, Five Dysfunctions of a Team, where that foundation of trust is built on you bringing that last 5% to the team, the question, the concern, the thing that you don't really want to talk about. We're going to move forward, and somebody should ask, hey, does anybody have final concerns? Anything you're, you're holding on to you haven't been able to speak yet? And the idea is that trust is built when you can actually voice that last 5%, where you can ask your questions and feel safe in that space. So Habakkuk is more than maybe 5%, maybe it's, 95%. He's bringing all of his heart saying, God, would you please help? But what's happening in that space is intimacy. Because intimacy starts with honesty. You can't really be intimate with God unless you're real with God. So to keep asking is part of this journey from despair to hopefulness. And then he doesn't stay there. He moves on, number three, to receive. God answers a, a second time in chapter 2. And before he gets there, Habakkuk just stops in verse 1 of chapter 2, and he says, I've asked my question. I will take my stand at the watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning, or what he will answer concerning my complaint. I'm going to stand. I'm going to receive. I'm going to wait. And then God answers in verse 2. And he says, write this down. Make it plain on tablets so that we may run. The one who reads it can actually Run, for still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come to you and not delay. He's saying, hey, write these words down. 
Habakkuk, both so you can proclaim them to others and you can preserve them. It's a, it's a gratitude for the word of God that we have the history of how God relates. Even these words he told Habakkuk to write down so that when Advent happened in 2023 and you were facing despair, you would have some sense of how God wanted you to respond and interact. God says, hey, write this down. Let people learn from this. I want you to hear what I'm going to say. And then here's kind of the two options. He says in verse 4, actually the central verse of the book, he says this, Behold, his soul, speaking of Babylon, he's answering the question, why are you going to use Babylon to come and destroy? He says, his soul, Babylon's soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. Hey, I'm not saying that Babylon is better than you. I'm not saying that Babylon is more righteous than you. I see them as arrogant and puffed up. But the righteous shall live by faith. So here we see these two choices responding to God. One is pride and one is faith. One is, is this unbelief and one is confidence in God. The, the two choices are not faith and doubt. The two choices are arrogantly saying, I don't need God, and then crying out to God in faith, asking for his help. This verse will be quoted three times in the New Testament. Romans 1.17, if you're taking notes, Galatians 3.16, and Hebrews 10.38. They'll all talk about this passage, and they'll talk about the complex nature of faith, that God both saves us by faith, it's not works that we do, it's by faith in Him that He saves us and rescues us, and that we walk by faith. We keep engaging with Him by faith in the midst of our uncertainty. What I want you to see here is the difference between Babylon and God's people is not that one's holy and good and one's not holy and good. They're both a mess and a wreck. The difference is God's people walk by faith reaching out to him. Those who deny God arrogantly say no to God walk in unbelief are the ones who actually he judges and are separated from him. In the middle of it, I just want you to notice it's not that God says, oh, they're better than you or you're worse than them. They're all equally falling short of the glory of God. Faith is the difference maker in how we actually receive from God and how we relate to him. And so Habakkuk chooses to receive what God says in faith. What he's going to do in the rest of chapter 2 is walk through these series of five woes to Babylon. Basically just saying, hey, I see their brokenness. They, they steal, they hoard up dishonest gain, they're given over to violence. They actually are drunk and they are promiscuous. They harm people. And they actually turn to idols that could never save them. Those are the five woes in chapter 2. Essentially what he's saying is, hey, I see the brokenness of Babylon too. In the midst of your questions and doubt, I'm not turning a blind eye to anything. Even though you complexly can't quite understand what I'm saying, in the spaces where I'm working in the world, I want you to understand that I am at work. Go back to chapter 1 for just a moment. After Habakkuk asks his first question, God says in verse 5, He says, Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe even if I told you. And then he goes and tells them. Okay, so what we see from that is, it's not that he's saying, you're too small, you're too insignificant, you wouldn't understand anyway, just trust me. He actually gives them an answer, but what he is flagging for them is, hey, I'm about to share with you things you can't comprehend. I still want you to know them. I want you to actually write them down. I want you to live into them, but you don't have the capacity to understand how I hold the entire universe. In the book of Romans, Paul will say something 
very similar. And he, and he gives an illustration. It's so graphic. He says, it's like you are a lump of clay, lifeless, moist dirt. That lump of clay trying to comprehend the mind of the artist and the potter who's using it and creating it. Your mental capacity is as far from where God is to this lump of dirt and clay. But he's not slapping him in the face with that. He still answers to him what he's doing. He just cautions him, hey, faith does not mean you have all the answers. Faith means you understand the one who is at work in the world is good and just, even if you can't quite understand it. So faith fills in the gap not with why God is doing what he's doing, but with who is doing the doing. Faith doesn't fill in the gap with why God is doing what it's doing. It fills it in with the who is doing the doing. Faith says, I don't understand all this. It's like a lump of clay wrapping its mind around the potter. The way you would understand all of the universe, all of time, eternity, past, present, and future. That is a very complex, mind-melting situation for mere mortals like us. And yet, as the Creator interacts with us, He does share why and how and who He is and what He's doing. I simply want you to see that Habakkuk doesn't just receive a rebuke. He receives confidence in the person of who God is. And what he tries to say is, hey, I'm not turning a blind eye to anything. Which, how complex is that? There's 8 billion people on the globe. At any given time, he sees it all, including your situation, including your struggle with sin, including your questions and doubts and fears. He sees all of that, and somehow in the mind of God, he can hold it all together. That's what he wants to say to Habakkuk, and that's what Habakkuk begins to receive. So, so he reaches out, he responds, and then he stops and receives the words from God about who he is and then he rehearses God's faithfulness in chapter 3. This is that, that song, look in verse 1. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to, and I think you say this like sigano. I don't know, it's tomato, potato, you can do whatever you want to with that. It's either a, a marker for like a lament psalm or it's a musical instrument. And then we see at the end of chapter 3, this is for the choir master with stringed instruments to, to help them understand how to sing this to the whole community. So he, he's going to take his time through chapter 3 and rehearse the good news of what God has done. He, he engages with God as this divine warrior who has delivered in the past, who has the power over all the brokenness around him. And what he chooses to do in that space is sing a song in the midst of his doubt and pain that cultivates affection for who God is. I wonder where your mind goes in doubt and pain. I wonder what songs you sing when you're overwhelmed. There's any number of songs the world would give us. Songs of doubt and lonely by Cher came on the radio. So I would get to the hub with all these um, grizzly dudes hucking passages with the song in the back of my head from Cher. This is a song for the lonely, for the brokenhearted, for the battle scarred. I'll be by your side. She comforted me as I drove in tonight. But I would sing for hours that song inside of us. Paul, when he's in prison, sings a song. I would just kind of present to you or offer to you the idea that you actually are singing all the time, whether you're aware of it or not, whether it rhymes or not, whether you have a tune to it or not, you are saying things about who God is 
all the time. And what Habakkuk chooses to do in his journey from this deep doubt and frustration and pain to faith is rehearses who God is. What song are you singing? And then are there times when you need the community to sing over you, to to help you understand and engage? Because there are truths in this book that we have to rest our entire lives on. Go back to chapter 2 for just a moment. In verse 14, he says, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. It's in the middle of this woe to Babylon, but he's saying, hey, I'm going to keep doing the work I promised way back in the garden to make all things new. There will be a day when everything is set right. Like the water covers the sea, I will bring glory over the entire universe. Isaiah picks this up in Isaiah 9 to speak of the Messiah, the branch, the root of Jesse, who will come into our world. And it's the same language. The Messiah will come and usher in a kingdom where his his beauty is like the water that covers over the sea, his glory covering over the entire earth. To sing songs about the Messiah's promise is soul feeding and soul stirring. So he rehearses God's faithfulness in the midst of his pain and sadness. It's a call to know God's word, to engage God's word, to know what he's done in the past, and to say, I know who you are, even if I can't see what you are doing. And then fifth, he resolves to trust God even when he can't fully understand it. So come down to verse 17 as he closes. He's been singing about who God is. It's all these Old Testament references to his power and might and his deliverance. And he says in verse 17, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vine, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there is be no herds in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on the high places. Okay, notice this. He's not saying everything is better. He's not saying everything fixed itself. He's saying when it is still dark, when every stall is empty, when there's nothing in the field, think drought, starvation, think despair. In that space, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. Our staff had a Christmas party on Friday and we played some trivia games and I asked some of our members some random questions and one of them was what song describes your last year and it was a matching game where we got to guess which person named that song hilarious by the way can I just say to you not a single person chose like everything is awesome (laughs) every single person chose this like long and winding road I will survive like keep on keeping on those were the themes of the songs Habakkuk's saying I'm going to rehearse who God is so that I can resolve to trust him even when I don't see evidence that he's at work came across a story, it's actually a children's story, called The Moon is Always Round by Jonathan Gibson. Parents, I would write this down. The Moon is Always Round by Jonathan Gibson. Jonathan Gibson is actually a New Testament scholar, and it's a story of his own personal life. It's dedicated to his child, Benjamin, who's about three years old when he writes, and it's the story of them navigating the stillbirth of his little sister. So he's walking with this boy through life and trying to find a way to make sense of it all. And he backs up a little bit and he says his son is super curious and always watching and noticing everything and what the sky looks like when it's about to rain and what it looks like when the sun is rising and what it looks like when it's cold and begins to notice the moon. And he says, Dad, the moon is like a banana. It's shaped like a banana. 
And he says, no, 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 son, the moon is always round. He goes on, and there's another day, and he actually, the boy says, hey, on the day that I heard that we were going to have a little sister, I looked outside, and the moon looked like a half of an apple. And he says, no, 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 son, the moon is always round. He says, on the day that I watched my dad put the crib together, the moon looked like a shriveled up orange. It wasn't quite full, and he said that out loud. Dad, look at the moon. It looks like a shriveled up orange. And he said, no, son, the moon is always round. And he says, on the day that I found out my sister wasn't going to come home from the hospital with us, I looked out, and Dad reminded me that the moon is always round. So he asked all kinds of questions, right? Does she not like us? Why is she not coming home? Does, why doesn't God provide the sister? Well, after she's with Jesus for a little while, will she come home? And this dad in despair just says to his little boy, hey, I, I don't know. I don't know why God is doing this, but I know just like the moon is always round, God is always good. There may be things that eclipse our view of that. There may be things that hide the understanding of that, but you can trust that the moon is always round. The story ends at the funeral for his little sister, and the dad in tears is doing the eulogy at his own daughter's service. And the boy's sitting on the front row, the book says, and he turns to his son and he says, what shape is the moon? The little boy says, the moon is always round. And he says, what, is, what does that mean, Benjamin? It means that God is always good. What Habakkuk shows us at the end is what it looks like for the righteous to walk by faith. It's to believe that the moon is always round. That God is always good, even when there are things in your life that are eclipsing your understanding of that reality. And the Bible is brutally honest about the things that are broken. When the stalls are empty, when there's nothing on the vine, when you feel desperate and overwhelmed, the righteous know that the moon is always round, that God is always good. There are countless things now, I would guess, in your life that are eclipsing the reality of the goodness of God. They make you doubt and wonder. They make you wonder why and how long and where is he. So maybe you would read chapter 3, verses 17 and 19 like this. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, and the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, and the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stall. Though the baby doesn't come, though I can't retire when I plan to, though the test came back positive, though the job fell through, though I feel misunderstood by my family, though I'm alone in most of the spaces of my life, though the pain simply will not go away, Though I'm not married yet, though my relationships with my adult children are strained, though my battle with addiction is exhausting, though I've been hurt by the church, though this is the first holiday season without that person that I love, though I never thought I would be divorced, though I can't see a way to pay my bills, though the world is at war and the future seems unsure, though there are natural disasters all over, though evils like human trafficking and child abuse still happen, Though we live in a tragic world this side of Eden, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. The God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet stand like a deer. He makes me tread on high places. Habakkuk, the way he reaches out to God, he responds. He receives what God says. He rehearses who God is. And then he resolves to see God is always good, just like the moon is always round, even when he can't quite understand it. 
And Habakkuk makes an argument from a, a greater to a lesser thing. This Babylonian attack is a massive national issue, and it gets applied to him personally. And Paul will do this in Romans chapter 8. He'll go from the greater to the lesser. He'll talk about if God didn't withhold his own son on our behalf, the greatest injustice in the universe, if God let his son be sacrificed on our behalf, then surely he will not withhold anything else that we need from the larger to the greater. Speaking of the fact that God loves and believes and cares about both of those things. And what I love about that idea is that God in that moment on the cross where he solves our biggest problem, where he shows that the moon is round, that God is good. It's the moment where he takes our place and he stands to receive the judgment that we deserve. Because remember, it's not good people and bad people. It's those who trust God and those who don't. So God makes a way to be just, to forgive all the brokenness of the world so that we can actually move to and respond to him. And the scriptures say in the book of Matthew chapter 27 that when the cross happens, the moment that Jesus dies, there's a total eclipse. It goes dark for three hours. And yet in that darkest moment, the moon was round. God, God was showing his goodness. Habakkuk helps us go forward in these excruciating times to remind us that even when I can't quite see it, the cross of Jesus tells me that the moon is always round. God is always good. We take communion every Sunday to remind us that the moon is always round, that God is always good. And as you wrestle with that, it's not a plastic platitude. Habakkuk won't let us get away with simple sentimentality. He makes us be honest about the brokenness and bring that brokenness to God and say, though I cannot see it, it feels like an eclipse. It feels like there's just this sliver of your grace and mercy that I can see. Yet what I'm holding in my hand with this bread that I dip into this cup, representing the blood of Christ and the body of Christ, tells me God is good. That though I can't see it, he is faithful, so I will keep following him. That's the word of Habakkuk to us. Would you bow your head just for a moment? I want us to move towards communion, and I want us to give you a chance to just take a deep breath and ask where you are, what's going on inside your soul. Communion is a time for all Christians to come and declare that God is good. Proverbially, the moon is round. He proved it on the cross, and what I'm holding in my hand is a symbol of those realities, even when I can't quite trace it in my life. If you're not a follower of Jesus, I want to invite you to stay in your seat and just consider this. The God who's running the universe, who knows how fragmented and broken it is, is committed to full restoration, and he accomplished that through his own sacrificial death on your behalf. He makes a way for you to be forgiven and set free so you don't have to pay the penalty for your own sin. That is the offer of the gospel. It's the message of the Bible. So we celebrate at Advent. It's what Habakkuk wants to move your heart towards to see that what you most need is to encounter God in the spaces of your brokenness. If you're not a follower of Jesus, just stay in your seat. There's some prayers in your bulletin that would give you some examples of what it would sound like to pray. But, but ask God to meet with you and speak to you. If you are a follower of Jesus, we'll come and take communion. There's servers here at all the aisles. We tear a piece of the bread off and dip in the cup. There'll be a gluten-free station here in the middle as well. We're going to take communion, and then we're going to close the service by singing, Great is Thy Faithfulness. Habakkuk sang chapter 3, and I want to give you a chance together with sisters and brothers to sing about the goodness of God. So first take reminders of that, and then we'll sing about it. Jesus, help us now in this space. Would you speak to us? Help us to encounter the goodness of who you are. Help us to believe that you are good and show us through the cross the proof and evidence from the greater to the lesser 
If you solved our biggest cosmic problem with your death on the cross, then surely you are mindful of the spaces of suffering and pain and struggle we have. Do you do a work now to stir faith in us? Help us see you, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Come when you're ready.